Jesus was leading his men into unfamiliar territory. Most of the disciples, they were Galileans. And Jesus was leading his men from the familiarity of their home area there in Galilee up further north into the the northern edge of the Israeli territory, Caesarea Philippi, right at the foot of Mount Hermon. Now, I've tried to stand, as it were, in the sandals there of these apostles as Jesus took them into this unfamiliar territory. And I've wondered how many of them had anxiety in their hearts as this was happening. I wonder if it seemed maybe a little unsettling as they moved into this unfamiliar territory. Caesarea Philippi was a mostly Gentile region, and Jesus led his men into that unfamiliar area. But not only was he leading them into an unfamiliar area, in a sense, he was also leading them into an unfamiliar era. From this point on, Jesus would be very much more explicit about his upcoming death on the cross down in Jerusalem. Some of you remember how we talked about that, how we've looked at that in our study through the Gospel of Luke recently. Jesus' men were hearing, some of them for the first time at this point, hearing about Jesus planning to die on a cross. Change. Unfamiliar territory. Unfamiliarity. Join me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Now, as you turn there in uh, in your Bibles to Matthew 16, let me just say today that we are coming, sadly, to the end uh, of the sermon series that we've been in recently, this sermon series called The Church. And we're in the last sermon uh, today, and we want to talk today about change. We want to talk today about where our confidence rests when we face unfamiliarity. Life includes change, doesn't it? We all know that life includes change. We all experience that. One, one experience that we all are very familiar with is the passing of time, especially as it relates to children. Babies have a way of becoming toddlers. And before you know it, toddlers, they're heading off to school and they're, they're, they're in grade school. Then one day, parents, we wake up and, and we realize that our grade school child isn't a grade school child anymore that he or she is now a teenager. Before you know it, those teenagers are growing up. They're heading off on their own. Many grown adults, uh, young adults, are getting married and having kids. The cycle starts all over again. Babies to toddlers, toddlers to grade school kids, grade schoolers to teenagers, teenagers to adults, and on and on it goes. And generation after generation, we see it. Generation after generation, we live it. We experience it. Now, thankfully, we all adapt to change, some of us more quickly than others. But, you know, change isn't always easy, is it? Many of us parents have even said, you know, I I told my kids that they weren't allowed to grow up. I I mean, I told you that you weren't allowed to grow up. You're supposed to stay small forever. Forever. Now somehow, and and I know some of you kids have heard that, my kids have heard that, somehow the kids just don't seem to get the message, do they? That that they grow up anyway. That that life, it involves, it includes change. 
You know, change isn't something that happens just to individuals, but it happens to organizations. Change happens to churches. Now, the core of the church, whose we are, with Jesus Christ as the head, the one who leads, the one who gives direction, his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That doesn't change, and yet the church does experience change. Now, the, the, just thinking about this, um, you know, in January, just three short months from now, I will have been at St. Paul's Bible Church for 17 years. Now, I know that some of you hear that and you're like, well, that's nothing, young man, because uh, I've been here for 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90 years, some of you. And, and, and yet I was thinking about those last, these last 17 years this past week and how things have changed over those years. Now, even just thinking about that, I mean, this platform up here that, that I'm standing on, I mean, it's changed. There used to be a choir loft up here, and there used to be uh, the organ used to sit down in this pit up here. And, and uh, when we first got here, when Sue and I first got here, I remember how uh, our, our choir, our, our, we didn't have a choir, and so our worship team looked very different than it does today. I mean, it consisted of two people, basically. There was a song leader, and there was an organist, and... And yet today, things have obviously changed. The, 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 the pews up here, the choir pews, they've been removed. The organ console has been raised up out of that pit, and it's been turned a little bit. And, and now, uh, you think about all of the people who are involved in the worship team today. I, I've, I was counting it this week, and we, we have about 15 people who are involved with their voices and with their instruments in helping to lead us as a congregation, as a church, in worship on Sunday mornings. Remember back to the winter months of 2002, January, February, even into March, there was this Bible study that met on Wednesday nights. And so I, I decided I, I would come and join it. And we met in the back of the fellowship hall. There was something like seven or eight of us who met at that point. And we studied together and uh, we prayed together. Well, a few Wednesday nights ago, uh, we were together once again. And, and we had uh, the adult Bible study and women's Bible study and kids club going on. And I, I just thought, you know, I'm going to do a quick count of how many people are here. There were 42 adults here and 27 kids, 69 people. And I thought, wow, I mean, things have changed. Remember when the youth group used to meet in the main offices? I mean, on a good day, a good Sunday, we would have three of us. And, and that was including me. Soon we outgrew that space and we moved down into the basement and we carpeted a room down there and we got these nice comfortable couches that were donated to us and we bought a TV and a stereo, but you know how basements are here in Chicago. They don't stay dry, do they? And so it got wet and we had to rip out the carpet and we had to throw out all of the, the couches that had gotten soaked and we had to move to higher ground. And so now the youth group uh, meets in a room just off to the right and up the stairs. Things have changed. You know, God has blessed this church with a great building. And, and yet over the years, we've had to do things like re-carpet and repaint and re-roof. And we've had to update some things, right? Churches, uh, the church has changed. You know, I think about... Even the way that we communicate as a church, how that has changed over the years. And, and when I first got here, uh, Joyce Pildage was the secretary, and she had been here for like, she's been, she was secretary for like 25, 30 years, right? 
And, and I remember, we, she could tell you all sorts of stories about things that have changed around here. But Joyce, she would come in every day, and we would work together, and we had a great time together. But some of the things that we worked on were things like mailing out letters to the community. Uh, mailing out letters to people in the church. Uh, we would update the bulletin boards, and we, would, we had this file cabinet that had all sorts of records. They always needed to be updated. Uh, we, we had faxes, faxes that were coming in and, and going out. The phone was ringing constantly. We would put advertisements in the newspaper and in the yellow pages. And in the office, there was this box. It was called a Rolodex box. Now, some of you are saying, what? I mean, what is that? What's a Rolodex box? Well, a Rolodex box, uh, it had all of the addresses and the phone numbers and, and, and you know, contact information of people in the church and, and people who did work around the church. And, you know, if we would have ever lost that thing, I mean, we would have had a huge problem. But now we have cell phones, and we now have computers with email and Facebook and the Internet and Google Docs. I mean, we don't use Rolodex boxes anymore. We, we don't use fax machines, the yellow pages. I mean, who uses the yellow pages? You just Google it or something, right? And now, you know, very rarely do we ever call a landline or send a letter in the mail. I mean, who does that? You know, things have changed. The way that we do things have changed. How we communicate has changed. Change isn't always easy. Now, eventually, most of us will adapt to change, but change isn't always easy. And just like the parent who says, you know what, I just wish that my kids would stay small forever, but they don't. You know, sometimes... People in church say, you know what, I just wish that everything would stay the th same, that nothing would ever change. But it doesn't. Life involves change for both individuals and for churches as well. Some people adapt to change really quickly and some people adapt to change a little bit more slowly. You know, I think in times when we face things that are unfamiliar, when we face things that are uh, changes... We need to look for something that, ha that, that we can find this sense of security in, right? We all want security. Is there anything that can assure me that everything is going to be okay? Well, praise the Lord, there is. Today, we want to remind ourselves of where our confidence lies. And so, once again, we are turning to the scriptures. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It gives us direction. And so Matthew chapter 16, I want to read to you verses 13 through 18 this morning. And you can follow along your copy of God's word that's open in front of you. As I read this, here's what it says. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Uh, did you notice in that passage that Jesus actually makes uh, two promises here? He makes a promise of the church's progress, and he makes a promise of the church's protection. A promise about the church's progress, and a promise about the church's protection. First of all, we want to look here at what Jesus has to say about the church's progress. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, this word church here, it's the first time in all of the New Testament where the word church is used. The first time, the first, the first place that we read this. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about the building. He's not talking about the church building. He's talking about the people. And he says, I am going to build my people. I'm calling them to myself. I'm calling them together to one another. And I am forming them into this family called the church. Well, whose church is it that he is building anyways? Jesus here rather emphatically says, I will build my church. Now, it's really important that as we go through life, as we go through the life of the church, that um, we, we remember that possessive pronoun there. It's important that we remember that Jesus says, I will build my church. It's his church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the congregation's church. It's Christ's church. He is its very owner. Now, some of you know that every year I go to a pastor's conference in Ohio. It's hosted by a, a, a pastor by the name of Alistair Begg, who's written a number of books. He's, he's uh, got a radio program called Truth for Life. He uh, has been the pastor in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, at this church for over 35 years. And the conference is great. I mean, I love going to the conference. I always feel encouraged. I always feel refreshed through the time that I spend there. One of the things that I have been able to experience and have really just appreciated over the time that I get to go there is not only the teaching and the speakers, but all the people that I've gotten to meet over the years, the friends that I've made. You know, there's this big banquet hall at this church where the conference is held. And so everyone has lunch and dinner together and we sit around these big round tables. We get to know each other. This past May... One of the meal, uh, one of the meal times, um, I met a guy by the name of Ron Morrison. Now, Ron is the founding pastor of a church in Ohio. He's been at this church since 1995, which is a long time. That was back when I was in high school, and, and, and yet, you know, we're sitting there, we're talking together, and I started asking him. I said, you know, what are some things that you've learned over the last 25 plus years? And he started telling me about some of the blessings and some of the the difficulties, some of the challenges that he's had over that time. And one of the things that he mentioned that I've experienced as well is that often, you know, as a pastor, especially if you've been at a church for a long period of time, you know, people can start to ask you or or act like you're the owner of the church, that the church is your church. Hey, how is your church? And at times, you know, uh, it, when you've been at a church for a long time, and even if you've been a member of a church for a long time, you can even start thinking that way. You can start thinking, you know what, this is my church. Nobody better mess with my church. It's got to be this way. Well, you know, the reality is it wasn't my blood. It was Jesus Christ's blood that was spilled in order to redeem the church. Jesus reminds us of that truth here in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will build my church. 
that he owns the church, that, that, that he's bought the church with his own precious blood, that the title of the church belongs to him, and he is the one who is building it. He, he uh, doesn't just own it, but he is actively, he is currently involved in building his church. He takes stones. He goes through like the, the quarry of humanity, as it were. And, and Jesus Christ, as he's walking through this quarry of humanity, he, he sees one of his elect stones. And so he reaches down and he picks it up and, and maybe he molds it and he begins to shape it a bit. And then he takes it and he places it in his temple. He's building this spiritual house. And then he goes back to the quarry and he gets another one of his stones. And maybe that stone is you. And he starts to shape it and he starts to mold it. And he places it right where he wants it in that spiritual home. And he goes back and, and, and he gets another stone and another stone and another stone. And maybe that's you or you and uh, you. And, and he's building these, this spiritual house. He, he is, it's his house. It's his temple. It's his church. And I think about that. I mean, how encouraging that is. On what is he building his church? Well, verses 17 and 18 here, there's a well-known debate uh, that's going on. And Jesus uh, says this. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, some of you are from Roman Catholic backgrounds, and you've heard from the time that you were a child that Peter was the first pope. And it's this passage in which the Roman Catholic Church will go and build this teaching that Peter was the first pope. Protestants, they've reacted by saying, you know, that's not true. No, no, no. Peter wasn't the first pope. I mean, Jesus was building the church, but he wasn't building the church on Peter. He, he, he was building the church on Peter's confession. And when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that, that is the rock that the church is being built on. It's on Peter's confession. Now, you know, I was thinking about that this week, and in a sense... Jesus did build his church on the apostles, didn't he? I mean, we've talked about that. And, and it's interesting. Uh, some of you know this already, but there's this play on words that's going on here. And Jesus kind of, he gives a nickname to Peter here. Peter, his real name was Simon. And Jesus gives Simon a nickname. And to kind of put it in modern American terms, he calls, uh, Jesus calls Simon Rocky. That's what Peter means. It means rocky. That, that you are rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, let me be clear here. I mean, this passage does not support the idea that Peter was the first pope or something like that. But, but it is true that God did use Peter, and he used the other apostles too, to build his church. In Sunday school... We've been studying through the book of Acts together, and if you pay really close attention to the details there, you'll notice that in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, they're primarily focusing in on the ministry of Peter. That if you skim through those first 12 chapters, you'll see that Peter's ministry is the primary focus there, and the other apostles as well, but Jesus built the church on the apostles. In fact... Paul would later write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 that uh, the prophets and the apostles are the foundation stones of the church of Jesus Christ. 
But, but even they themselves, the foundation stones of the apostles and the prophets, are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Peter, he calls him the chief cornerstone. That Jesus Christ was the, the, the supporting foundation for them all. That, that the apostles understood that their ministry had to center around Jesus Christ. That it was built on Jesus. You know... That has a direct influence on us today even as well, that everything we do as a church must be built on Jesus Christ. That every sermon that we preach from this platform, it needs to point to Christ. That every uh, lesson that is taught in, in children's church, I mean, they're meeting in, this, in these classrooms off to the side here, even right now. And every uh, lesson needs to be focused on Jesus Christ. You think about Sunday school uh, that takes place after the morning worship service or Wednesday night Bible studies, small groups, youth group, the songs that we sing, the conversations that we have all need to point to Jesus Christ. We, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind each other of Christ and what he has done. There is no other foundation. There are lots of so-called churches that will be meeting together today and throughout the week. And, and if you were to go there and you were to listen to these so-called churches, you would hear nothing or very little about Christ. We, 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 we know that there is nothing that we have to say unless it is focused on Christ. He is our hope. He is our foundation. It is all about him. And this church must be all about Christ. We have to be. Our confidence is in Christ. Jesus makes this second promise here in Matthew chapter 16, a promise of the church's protection. And so not only does he promise that he will build his church, that, he, that the church will make progress, but he also promises the church's protection. And he says there that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell represents the, the power of Satan and his helpers. Satan and his helpers have all kinds of sinister weapons that are in their arsenal that they want to use against people. And one of the scariest, one of the most sinister weapons that he has is death. That death is one of our biggest enemies. You know, we read surveys at times about what people's biggest phobias are. And I've even read how one of people's biggest phobias is public speaking. Or some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of large crowds, uh, afraid of spiders, afraid of snakes. And we have all of these phobias. But do you know that the biggest phobia of all, do you know what it is? It's death. Uh, it's this fear of people saying, you know what, I don't want to die. Now... Just recently, I was talking to a young man, 24 years old. He's not attending church, but he has heard the gospel. His father's uh, died not too long ago, and, and he told me, you know what? I am just scared of dying. I, he says, I, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or hell, and, and I'm so scared about dying myself. I told him, I said, thank you for your honesty. I mean, thank you for being open. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I thought, you know what, he is verbalizing something that, is so, uh, that, that so many people feel, that so many people uh, are thinking, but they're too scared to verbalize, they're too scared to talk about. And I had the opportunity in that moment to minister to that young man. People are afraid of dying. 
which is a tool that Satan has used in his arsenal, a weapon that he has used to keep people in check, uh, this fear of death. And yet Jesus says here, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And even as Jesus tells his men this, you have to think that in that moment, he's thinking about, he, is, he realizes his upcoming death, that he is, going to, he is going to die himself, but he also hints at his own resurrection. I'm reminded of what Peter said in that great sermon that he preached at Pentecost. He said in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, talking about Jesus, he said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know, I, I think about Satan and how he, he must have rejoiced as Jesus was hanging there on that cross. And, and Satan must have been thinking, you know what? I've got him now. I've got him now. Probably one of the most frequently sung songs around here over the, the last few years has been In Christ Alone. And I'm reminded about what uh, verse 3 says there in that song. You're probably familiar with it too. It goes like this. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And I think uh, Keith Getty and, and Stuart Townsend kind of capture the heart of that truth there. That, that death couldn't hold Jesus down. That Satan tried to hold Jesus down by having him beaten and killed. And yet Jesus burst forth from that grave. He arose and he stands in victory today. And because Jesus Christ has conquered Satan, because he has overcome the grave, those of us who are believers, those of us who are in Christ, we will also defeat sin and death and Satan. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. He gives us life. If you're a believer here today, I want you to listen very carefully to this. Now, this might sound like a bit of a contradiction here, but you will survive death. You will survive death, and so will I. Because Jesus survived death. He came back out of the other side. He rose from the dead. And you and I as believers who have been appointed, it's been appointed for us to die. We will uh, arise from our death on the resurrection. We will survive death. And, and you know, that's true. It's true because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so Satan, his sinister tool of trying to hold us back, of trying to paralyze us with this fear of death... It's not working. It won't work. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's the promise of the scriptures. Now, I want to ask you a very pointed question here. You know, if Jesus is able to disarm Satan's most sinister tool, this tool of, of death, this fear of death, isn't Jesus also able to disarm Satan's lesser tools? 
I mean, sometimes I, I, I think we live with this uncertainty and we live with this fear and we think, you know what, what's going to happen? I mean, things are just all falling apart or, you know, thinking about the church, you know, it's all just going to go down the tubes, I guess. But we need to be reminded of who the head of the church is. It's Jesus Christ. And he has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We find great assurance as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful pictures of the glorified Christ, it's found in Revelation chapter 1, where the glorified Jesus uh, said to John, he says, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. He says, he has the keys. My Savior, your Savior has the keys, and so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry. It's as if Christ, as the mighty conqueror, the mighty victor, broke out of death and he began to take his gospel and build his church around the world. You know, in the book of Acts, we see how it all happens. The church, it starts out with 120 people there gathered together praying. The Spirit of God descends upon them. Within a matter of days, this small band of believers of 125 or 120 people break out and there's now 3,000 people. And as you go here and there throughout the book of Acts, Luke, the, the author, gives us these updates. He gives us these reports about the church and its growth. And he says, and the church continued to grow. And he says things like thousands were added to the church. And you can see the church in the book of Acts, and it starts there in Jerusalem, and it begins to spread and spread and spread. And soon it's all around the Mediterranean basin. You get to Acts chapter 28, and it ends with the gospel now being spread across the Mediterranean. And if there was an Acts 29 or an Acts 30, an Acts 31, we, we could just see the gospel spreading and spreading all around the world. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone uh, to Europe and Asia and Australia and Africa and North America and South America. And I think about even people that I personally know, people that you know in places all around the world who have been saved and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just here in America, but around the world. And you think about that. I think about that and I say, you know what? He is doing it. I mean, Jesus said he would build his church and now he is doing it. And not even the gates of hell itself can hold him back and hold back this mission that he is on. The church is going to advance. The protection of the church, the progress of the church, it is guaranteed because our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, has promised it. It is glorious. It's glorious to see. And you know what? He has used this church, this particular church, St. Paul's Bible Church, to advance the gospel around the world. Those of you who are veterans here at St. Paul's have uh, seen and know that we are a part of sending and supporting missionaries that have gone out all over the world to all sorts of different places. To places like Italy and the Czech Republic and Mali and Brazil, British Columbia, Canada. Australia, Japan, 
Bangladesh. And we could go on. And I, I think about all of these different missionaries that we've supported over the years and how God has used this church to advance his gospel. That the church continues to grow. It continues to advance. This church continues to grow. You know, we, we come into a sanctuary, uh, this sanctuary, every Sunday morning. And I think it would be easy to start thinking, you know what? Well, this is just the way it is. I mean, this is the way it's always been. But this isn't the way that it's always been. I mean, Jesus Christ has built this church into what it is today. Now, we could go back and we could think about the last 125 years. We could go back to the very beginning when St. Paul's Bible Church started. And back then, it wasn't even called St. Paul's Bible Church. It was called St. Paul's Evangelical Church. And there were 39 people who gathered together as that first congregation. And then we could talk about how the fact that they didn't even meet here at 94th and Winchester. They actually met down the street, not just a few blocks away from here, in this small building at Ridge Park. And we, we, we could think about all of the history of all the pastors and all the people who have been a part of this church, all the missionaries who've been a part of this church. And yet it is clear, it is very clear that Jesus Christ has been in charge of building this church. And I think about and I look at, at, at the future and I wonder, you know, Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to move this church in the future? And the scripture tells us that he wants to do immeasurably more than what we could ever ask or even imagine. And so my prayer has been, Lord, may the years in front of us be even more fruitful, be even better than the years behind us. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like, what it's going to be like in 20 years from now, maybe 50 years from now, thinking about and celebrating what God has done here? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, our confidence is in Christ and his promises. Life, it involves change. It, it involves change for us as individuals. It involves change for us as a church. But we want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We, we want to hold on to him. Not, not things from the past. Not things that we feel comfortable with. Not, not particular individuals that we love so much. We want to hold on to Jesus Christ because he is the head of our church and he is eternal and he is unchanging and he has given us these promises. He has given us the promise that, uh, of the church's progress and he's given us the promise of the church's protection. And I know, I know that he is going to keep his word. Now you say, well, Jason, how do you know that he's going to keep his word here? Well, because he's already given us a glimpse into what is to come. Revelation chapter 5, we get this view of heaven. And there are the 24 elders and they're gathered around the throne. And Jesus is present there. And here's what the 24 elders are saying. They're saying, worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." That one day we believers will stand around the throne of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and we will be singing His praises. And as we look around at that crowd, there are going to be people from all of the ethnic groups, all of the races, all of the tribes, all of the languages. It's the church. It's His church. And on that day, 
On that day, I imagine us turning towards Jesus, and I imagine even myself, I imagine shouting to him and saying, you've done it. You've done it. You promised that you were going to build your church, and you did it. And we celebrate that. And we are just in awe because of the fact that he is a promise-keeping God. He's, he's promised it, and he's going to fulfill it. He's going to follow through on his promises. I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray.